Welcome to the 1823 podcast from LJMU. In this episode, we're going to be focusing on the Commonwealth Games. Drawing upon our sports science expertise, we'll give you an insight into how athletes from across the home nations will be preparing to compete in an international sporting event on home turf. I'm Professor Greg White, and I'm joined by Graham Close, Dave McDermott, and Amy Whitehead. Uh, and I'm going to pass over to Graham first off, just to introduce yourself and tell us uh, what you do, Graham. Hi, Greg. Yeah, so I'm a professor at Liverpool John Moores, a professor in human physiology. Um, my research historically has been focused upon sport nutrition, particularly looking at how nutrition can help with muscle regeneration, muscle repair. So at the moment, doing lots of research on vitamin D and controversially cannabidiol, CBD, which I don't think you can go anywhere at the moment without hearing a little bit about. But perhaps the more interesting side of, of my life is I also work uh, as a sport nu nutrition consultant. So currently working with the likes of England Rugby, the DP World Tour Golf, uh, consult to Premier League soccer clubs, and most recently, Dillian White, uh, the heavyweight boxer. So yeah, quite an eclectic um, role that I have here at the university, Greg. Fabulous. <laughs> Thanks, Graham. Uh, Amy, you're next up. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, um, I'm Dr. Amy Whitehead, and I'm a reader in uh, sports psychology and coaching uh, here at Liverpool John Marsh University. My research predominantly focuses on how athletes and coaches make decisions. Um, so from sports such as cycling and endurance to kind of golf, um, tennis, kind of anywhere we can put a clip mic and, and ask athletes to think aloud. Um, I've pretty much tried it. Um, and I also work as a sport and exercise psychologist as a consultant. So I work with a range of different athletes, again, from endurance performers to kind of, you know, um, Olympic level to grassroots. Fabulous. Thanks, Amy. And Dave, last but not least. Hi, Greg. Yes, I'm David McDermott. My role at Liverpool John Moores University is Head of Elite Sport and Athlete Management. So I have the role of coordinating all the performance services for the, for the athletes, um, as well as working with sport and with the coaches um, to coordinate those performance services, as well as alongside encouraging them and supporting them to graduate within three years or so. <laughs> no mean feat, <laughs> David, that's for sure. <laughs> well, listen, I mean, for me, it's, it's an intriguing debate. We're talking about the Commonwealth Games. Uh, it's very, very soon, not far off at all in, uh, in Birmingham. I mean, I, I, I guess let's kick off with the first question, because the one thing that interests me is I, I've, I've I led the science on two Commonwealth Games uh, for England. The first one was in Delhi and the second one was in Glasgow. And to me, you know, we know it as athletes, but it's really interesting to see the difference between competing abroad, international competition abroad versus on home soil. Now, obviously, for the English athletes, that wasn't home soil, it's in Scotland. But let's go with Amy first. I mean, what's your take on it, Amy? We're, we're in Birmingham now. Will that make a difference for Team England? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, if we look at home advantage across any sport, there's a huge amount of research and evidence that says, you know, athletes and teams perform better at home. Um, you've got everything from, you know, being able to be familiar with the environment, not having to travel, um, 
to you know um, just knowing knowing the environment having fa- friends and family there to to, to support um, and and I think there was a study done I was doing a bit of research before this podcast and there's a ton of research that's tracked the Olymp- Olympic Games back to the 18, 1800s and looked at the home um, home advantage and it's you know it's it's there so I think all these contributing factors uh, I think there was another study done about travel distance so there was a correlation between the distance traveled um, and performance um, and medals achieved so the, the further the distance the the less the medals I think that's starting to change now with technology uh, and and advances but that was a big contributing factor at one point so it's a really interesting point, and I think people often talk about home advantage on the, the Olympic medal table. I think one thing that you can never remove from that is that once you've once you've got the home Olympics, what you find is those nations push a, a huge amount of money. They've got six years in preparation for those games, and they push a huge amount of money into the preparation of those teams. So I think sometimes there is an element of home advantage, but there's also an element of the fact that actually it's probably the best prepared team for that country ever. Um, I, I, the other thing on that, obviously, there's a psychological aspect to it. But Graham, I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of of nutritional advantage of actually being at home in in your home environment with home food. Yeah, well, I, I was just thinking when you're speaking. Then for me, there's probably three key things of physiologists would think about, isn't there? You've got the jet lag, which is the first one. You know, we know that it takes about an hour, uh, sorry, a, a day per time zone. So every time zone you travel, it's going to take about a day to get over it. So unless the teams are willing to get out really early, the chances are you're still going to bring a little bit of adding to performance. We've got the environment. You know, if, if you're not used to competing in that environment, in terms of temperature, humidity, altitude, now we can try and acclimate, but as you know, there's challenges with that and it takes time. But from a food perspective, everything from um, foods that you're not familiar with, um, Eating on a different time zone can be a bit of an issue. Um, getting access to the type of foods that you would normally eat pre, during and post competition. I, I know at the moment, we, you know, some I work with England rugby, it's not exactly the Commonwealth Games, but the, the challenges we have of getting our regular supplements over to Australia. You know, you've got um, legislation preventing some things being shipped. So now we're having to try and get around that and maybe have things that the players aren't as familiar with. So but there's multiple factors uh, and there's nothing as easy as being on your home territory and, and being able to get exactly what you're used to at the right time, uh, cooked the way that you want it. So, so based on that then, David, we've got, the, the, we've got home advantage and nutrition, home advantage from crowd and family and supporters. It's going to be an easy Commonwealth Games. Is that, is that the way we're looking at it? <laughs> <laughs> it's never easy. And I think a lot of the athletes, are always preparing for twists and turns and ebbs and flows. Um, and when they do get to that level, they've certainly had experiences of being able to face challenges and overcome adversities. And, and we have about, uh, I think we're about 10 athletes from, from John Moore's uh, current or alumni are in this Commonwealth Games. And yeah, every one of them have had their own story on how they've, how they've reached this point. And, you know, in regards to the, the home, being a home support, in addition to the athletes, it makes my life so much easier as well because going on from what, what Graham and, and Amy have said, the, the preparedness um, for the games with the travel, our athletes are so time poor. So from an academic flexibility perspective, 
Um, we always want the academics to run alongside the sport or to complement it and to have that um, that positive distraction for them. You know, so 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 when they do have a bad a bad training session or a bad competition leading up to it, they're not they're not ruminating. They've got an opportunity to speak to other people, go to a different environment. People don't know who they are. So it's the education side of it is um, sometimes a real positive distraction. But when they're having to prepare to go to India or do altitude training or travel to different places, that takes them away from their routine, um, their school life, their being in and around that environment. And then it, it suddenly then it can become catch up. So it certainly makes my life a lot more easier with the home nations. And, and I think anecdotally as well, we, I've spoken to most of the guys now who are who are leading up to the to the Commonwealth Games and and each Every one of them, they're, they're all already talking about seeing their family there, seeing their friends there. So already they're starting to picture, you know, potentially what it's going to be like. And they've been and they've competed in a lot of these 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 halls or tracks or pitches where they're going to be. So they understand the smell, the the, the feelings that they're going to have before they arrive. And, and I think sometimes that can be home can be a reassuring point for them. So certainly there's enough setup for them, but. There's, there's no clear path for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting as you were talking there. The one thing I've sort of reflected on this year is that actually the Commonwealth Games is the only major games which hasn't been disrupted uh, due to the pandemic. So last com last Commie Games were in 2014 and 2010, and uh, sorry, 2018, 2014, 2010, and here we are in 2022 on time. Um, I think what, what's interesting, and perhaps to you, Amy, first of all, is sort of the psychological issue is that Olympic Games, it was a five-year Olympiad, uh, really difficult for many athletes to, to go that additional year and try and maintain that conditioning and that focus for that additional year into the Olympics. But then what's happened this year, I'm sure you guys have been watching, but they've now condensed a whole host of, of major games into a single year. So the swimmers, for example, are going from World Swimming Championships in Hungary, uh, only finished last week. Uh, they're going to the Commonwealth Games, uh, and then they've got the European Championships uh, shortly after that. Same in world athletics, you know, so there's a, it's a real concentration of major events. And from a, and perhaps we'll come on to Graham in terms of this, this periodization uh, and peaking at the right time. But I wonder psychologically, Amy, how do we, how do athletes cope with that? What, what, what's the, what's the, the, the coping mechanisms that they'll have, do you think? I think it can go one of two ways. So I think athletes can either be building on success and kind of gain momentum from that and do really well. Or because they haven't maybe planned for that early on in the periodization, and then this this kind of like squashed or like so much uh, competition in a short period of time, it can lead to burnout. Um, and in, in terms of like coping strategies, and I think Graham will, will link into this. So you know, a lot of these athletes will have you know um, multiple support mechanisms from their nutritionists their you know snc etc etc and you know sleep experts and i think it's um using the their team their multidisciplinary teams to to really put in those that that plan in and for me as a psychologist i'd be looking at downtime um and looking at strategic rest um and, and time out from that which is very difficult isn't it within when within so many so many competitions within a short period of time but I think we our athletes have got an advantage 
in that we are at home. So they are having, they don't have to go out three weeks prior or even like earlier on. So for example, the we one of our ex students is a sports psychologist for the Malaysian team, and he was over with a, with a team kind of a month ago, and um, just doing a recce of, of the area. I um, I think for countries like that as well, it's like the the food over here is like very different, um, the climate, the weather, everything. So yeah, from a, a coping perspective, I think you know it's taken advantage of the multidisciplinary teams, but also. From a periodization perspective, where is rest and downtime planned into that? I mean, Graham, you must have seen this, you know, with England rugby, you come off the back of a, a, a Six Nations series. And then if the if the World Cup or another major event is very close by, then you are moving from and, and we can say that one is more important than the other. But actually, for an athlete, they're all important. They want to win every single game, every match, every competition. And, and uh, how, how does someone like England Rugby actually, you know, work with that and factor that into the prep? Yeah, it's really hard. And you're exactly right that um, trying to peak multiple times in short succession is what probably makes campaigns like, like this difficult, you know. Um, I think it's probably more challenging for the coaching staff and potentially the older, older athletes. Because as I remember my days as a younger athlete, you just do as you're told. You know, this is when you train, this is how hard you train, and you put faith in your coaching staff. And I imagine it's for physiologists and that who have got a few sleepless nights thinking, what do we do here? Do we try and peak for each event? Do we put more priority on the big one? Which is the bigger one? Um, and one example is just being on weight at the right time, Greg. So mm, yeah, really nice study done by Trent Stellingworth. And it was really nice because... Uh, the athlete and it was his wife over many years, Hillary, who was a, an elite Canadian runner. And what this paper showed was her weight management over the career. And it was quite clear that when it came to competition, that's when there was a weight drop. But getting back to more of a healthy maintenance weight. So now we're going to get into situations where we're potentially asking athletes to keep at that race weight for a longer period of time than they used to. Um, and hand on heart, I don't think people will have that data to say what's the best way to do that. Yeah. So we are into a little bit of a land of the unknown, and I think the pressure is mainly on the likes of yourselves, and the, the, the support staff, and the older athlete who has got into routines and they know how to do it and know it's like, that's not how I do it. I think the younger athletes will be absolutely fine. It's an interesting one that now you're saying that, uh, Graham, because you think about the weight making sports, you know, you just work with Dillian White. Boxing, amateur boxing is a classic for that. Uh, and obviously, at the comedy games, things like weightlifting. The one thing that we do know is that people, the athletes, reside right on the edge. I mean, when they are making weight, they are only just making weight. A great example of that, I remember at the 92 Olympics, I remember watching a judo player having their head shaved, a female <laughs> judo player having her head shaved to attempt to make weight. You know, so these guys are right on the edge. And of course, if you've got multiple events in close succession, you're right. I mean, what, what do you do? Do you just keep the weight down? But then with that, you're then affecting training quality and strength and, and, and muscle mass, et cetera. Or do you try and bounce up and bounce down and bounce up, which is incredibly difficult and psychologically punishing to do? Yeah. Uh, and, and like we say, I don't know if anyone has the genuine answers. No. I know that within sports like boxing that you mentioned, there's been a big culture change with, with the amateur boxing and 
certainly trying to get people closer to the fighting weight throughout the year. So it is only now the small dip rather than these extreme dips that you get. Um, but it's even in sports that we don't think of as weight-making sports, like distance running. You know, mm-hmm. the, the weight that they'll want to run at will be very different to what they'll want to walk around all year at. And, and Trent's shown really nicely that if you do them little dips, then health isn't compromised. But if we try and get them to stay for a long period of time at that race weight, then health may be compromised. So it's a challenge and it's one that a lot of people won't be used to. And, and, and it's a great one that you raise. And you know, I'd be really fascinated to see how people do manage it. And hopefully there'll be some nice research coming out at the end to, to explain how this did happen. Yeah, let's hope so. And David, something we haven't mentioned is that obviously, you know, athlete lifestyle, uh, particularly for, for the JMU students, actually includes study. And of course, during the pandemic, that was significantly disrupted. So, so in addition to the, the disruption of training and competition, you've obviously got layered on top of that is the, the, the disruption of, of education, of examinations, et cetera, et cetera. How, how, have, how have they coped uh, in, in your mind with that? Yeah, the, the, it's very complex. You know, they have had to deal with a lot of information, a lot of changing to routines um, and also their own identity. You know, they are, they're, a, they're an athlete. That's what they get up in the morning. That's what they do. They train and, and they have that focus. And then suddenly that was all taken away from them. And the athletes navigated, you know, through that in, in their own unique and, and individual way. And our services, you know, to them was to, was to stay close to them um, and was to, was to do many check-ins. But, but also as well, it was what was fascinating was we had an opportunity to talk a little bit more about the meaning. Why are they in sport? How did they get into sport? And then they started to think about more about their, their lifestyle and having other areas of fulfillment. So some of our athletes are extremely talented, but maybe not be totally fulfilled with their sport. So it gave an opportunity for them to tap the brakes, to maybe um, look at other areas and, and of community development was it was a real interesting thing that they come out with a lot of our athletes and it was a it was a great opportunity for them to serve someone other than themselves and as a result of that they had a, a stronger sense and um, some of them had a stronger sense of well-being so it gave them opportunities to look out for the neighbor to check in to go shopping for someone else um, to, to to help other people and. It, it felt that that break at times for majority of them, they, they came back into the sport with certainly more intention and more hunger and more purpose. Um, and, it, and it broadened their identity. So they had opportunities to, to continue to do other things and support other people and still offer that peer support that, we, that we'd set up, for an example, as one of the activities. So I would say in general, um, a lot of the athletes that over this, over this past 12 months we've probably had to slow them down a little because they've been so eager to get back in. And that, that hunger certainly has been re-energized from that breakaway. A oh, good place to be, I guess. <laughs> At least yeah, they're hungry yeah. for it. That's a good thing. You're listening to 1823 Podcast. 28th of July opening ceremony. Graham, let's start with you. What are athletes going to be doing now in this final phase? What's it about? Panic. Um... <laughs> Because no matter how much possible, 
Yeah, but you know what it's like, no matter how much you prepared, you're beginning to question, have you prepared enough? Um, and again, it will be dependent on the age, the younger athletes, will be excitement, there'll be panic, will be not knowing what to expect. But in terms of physiology, the work's in the bank. Uh, hopefully the mileage is in the legs, the lifts are in the body, um, and it will just be a little bit of uh, beginning to taper it down, but not stopping because obviously we don't want to uh, not don't want to detrain at this stage. It'll be about practicing things now. Certainly from my world of nutrition, we'll be making sure that all the nutrition strategies are tried and tested. We know what we're doing, and for me, it's about building confidence now at this stage. But trying to remove that panic and, and let them know that you know they're the most prepared, ready for. You know, it'll be, for me, it'll be showing some metrics, building the confidence. This is where we are. This is what we've done. You know, I mean, it, it, it's a really complex question to throw at you, really, because obviously yeah. it does depend. So the swimmers, for example, they're literally coming off the back of the World Swimming Championships. Five weeks to prep for Com Games. You know, that's a really interesting period of time. Do you go back into some volume and then taper off again? Or do you try and maintain that taper? For, long time to maintain a taper, five weeks, really yeah. long time. And of course, as Amy has already said, what's interesting is what happened at the, the previous, what happened at World Championships? Did they win a medal? Did they perform badly? And so therefore, how are they going to re, readjust that and refocus it? I think, you know, the one thing, I think you you, you coined it beautifully, though, and that is panic. And, and I think the one thing that you often see is the inexperienced athlete or, or perhaps even the inexperienced support team. What they will do at this stage is try something new. Uh, and that is an absolute disaster. I, I remember um, back in 2010, uh, I, I won't give full details, but there was a weight-making sport and there was a, an athlete who was uh, using water loading as a, as a way to, to, to reduce weight. And we won't go into it because it is so dangerous. Mm. Never done it before, but was so afraid that they wouldn't make the weight. They were just prepared to try anything. And I think that panic thing is really important. I wonder, Amy, what you're thinking there in, in the sense of how do we, how does the athlete control? And, and to my mind, actually, and I, I've seen it, and, and again, I won't go into details, but I remember watching a coach panic at a major games uh, and just overcook their athletes, all of them, overcook them to the point where the athletes actually started to get better as the competition went on simply because they were overcooked coming in. So everybody can panic here. What what are we thinking, Amy, in terms of, of sort of avoiding that? Yeah, the first thought that comes to mind, which is very, is much more easier said than done, is controlling the controllables, right? So linking to what Graham said, you know, physiologically, where are we at? So let's look at all the training we've done, and let's be really proud of kind of where how we've where we've got to and how we've got here. But then, what's the plan? So my athletes are always sick of me talking about the plan. So and sometimes we look at what's plan A and what's plan B and sometimes what's even plan C because we've got to leave that competition being happy with something. If things haven't gone to plan, you know, what what can we take away? So I always think about, you know, what's the plan the week before? What's the plan the day before? Um, what's the plan on the actual com- like in the competition itself? So if you're an endurance runner, what does your what's the race look like? What's your strategy? Literally planning as much as possible. Who are you com- who are your opponents? What do we know about the opponents? So obviously depending on your your discipline. Um, like if you're in a if you're in triathlon, for example, um, have we gone through that event in our minds already? 
um, as clear and as vividly as possible, as much as possible, so that once we get there on the start line, we've already been there um, and we already kind of roughly know how it feels to, to, to be in that situation. Um, and, and then, yeah, I think, you know, what are the goals? So it goes back to the plan, um, yeah, our goals, um, our process goals, our outcome goals. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, what I usually do is, um, at this point is to go through that plan as um, meticulously as possible with, with the athletes. And um, Katie Safiras, she's a triathlete. She got bronze in, in the um, Olympics. She then posted afterwards her kind of race plan. And it was exactly like, like step by step, spot on. And, and she was a really nice example of kind of when that plan really goes well. I'm sure there's other plans that haven't been shared when it goes to absolute rubbish. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, that's kind of what, what I'd usually do when I'm working with athletes at this stage. This must be music to your ears, David. And I mean, you must spend your entire time trying to get athletes to plan. 100%. And um, those guys that, that we've listed, for example, or we've mentioned who were there, have made it for, you know, to this Commonwealth Games, even though their personalities are all different, there's certain principles and, and certain ways and their manner and approach and that consistency and discipline and, and planning and that self-leadership, it, it's apparent in a lot of the top athletes that we are working with. And my role leading up to the Games is, is for them to making sure that the academics and their lifestyle and, and people in and around them are really important. You know, as you said, they're going into this real heavy period now um, and they're going to need, you know, good people who are patient, um, who really understand, you know, um, that what they're going through and be able to see the world through their eyes and support and help them. And I think that's really at the end when they receive the medals and, and, they, and they achieve some of the, you know, the, the best ever results. Um, you often find them talking about their friends and family because they are really important, you know, during this stage. And, and I have a, a great role when Amy has prepared them and, and Graham has put his nutrition plans and, and I'm just there with cheerleading, supporting them and cheering them along um, along the way. Just as important, David, let me tell you. I mean, I, you know, I have this little mantra and that is that nothing great is ever achieved alone. And I think actually, what, again, what, what often we see at, at major games is we see the athlete in isolation. And of course, what we forget is you guys you know, behind the athlete. And in fact, you know, th these athletes now, I, I was I was fortunate enough to to um, be the first director of science for the English Institute of Sport. And this is 2004, so it's not that long ago, really. Um, and at that, at that point, it, support staff were piecemeal. And you, you saw some of them about in some sports, not in other sports. Those sports that could afford it, had it. And, and when I started working in uh, English Institute of Sport, there were four four support staff at that time. When I left two years later, there were 144. So, so these guys are now wrapped in big teams. I mean, Amy, just coming to you, I mean, what, you know, to my mind, I think what, what, we, what we need here, it's interesting, I think what we saw is we saw an explosion in support staff. And then what we've seen since that time is it started to settle and, and actually it's become a much more specific in terms of getting the right people for the right job with, with, with the athletes. What, what, what's your thinking of teams that are just too big or, or dysfunctional? 
I think it depends what sport. Um, and I'm sure you've worked across a range of sports where there's a different amount or types of teams. Um, from a sports psychology perspective, it's I love working in multidisciplinary teams where we all work together and we all kind of share information. It can be so successful and so beneficial for the athlete. I think where it becomes problematic is where, you know, the support team doesn't want to share information. Mm. Um, as a sports psychologist, it, you know, I do have um, a role of confidentiality when working with an athlete, but I kind of, I'm working in a, a setting at the minute where I'll always ask the athlete, can I share some of this information with the coach? And that because they've got such a good relationship with the coach, they're more than happy for us all to kind of be one coherent team. I think that yeah the problem arises is where you know some members of the team want certain information that we can't share and and we don't quite gel properly um and i'm sure everyone's got examples of working with both types of teams but i think you know having a nutritionist a sports psychologist an snc coach you know a technical coach all working together can work can work really really well to develop you know that that athlete well, so it's a really interesting point, uh, Amy, and that, and that, because let me tell you, it was ever thus. I mean, I've worked in sports science support with elite teams for, oh crikey, um, you know, three decades, and I can tell you, every every year there is always an issue about data sharing or information sharing, particularly when it comes to things like qualifications. Is that an athlete doesn't want to tell the support staff he's injured? Uh, or doesn't want actually to have his blood taken at a particular time because he knows he's under the weather, if that's going to impact on, on selection for a competition. So I, I think it was ever thus, but I think what you articulate is absolutely right, is that it's about confidence and about belief and also about trust that what you are is you're part of this trusted team who's looking after the best interest of the athlete. Uh, it's, it's a really difficult place to get to, particularly with, with new and emerging athletes. Yeah, and just exactly what you said, that it takes time. Yeah. And within sports psychology now, there's a big thing about accreditation and having, you know, being qualified. Because um, yeah. that's a whole other issue we could spend the podcast talking about. But <laughs> there's there's a whole spectrum of, you know, people on the trainee ladder to um, people working in highly high professional sport with no qualifications. So I think that's, um, you know, another issue that needs to be kind of understood a bit better. 100%. It's complex, no doubt about it. Graham, I, I love throwing difficult questions at you, so I'm going to throw one at you now. Nutrition, what's new? Give me the what, what's the one thing that post Commonwealth Games we're all going to be talking about because the media have picked up on this new thing that a certain athlete's using. Potentially, it could be cannabidiol. It could be CBD, which is controversial. Um, but I have no doubt some people are going to be be using it. And the reason I say it's controversial, Greg, is that. CBD up to 2018, I think, was prohibited by WADA. So cannabidiol being one of the cannabinoids from the hemp plant, from a cannabis plant. Uh, WADA, in their wisdom, you see with my rolling guys, decided to remove CBD as a prohibited substance in 2018. And there are claims around CBD, but it helps with sleep, muscle soreness, muscle regeneration, and even traumatic brain injury, concussion. So you can see why athletes are interested in it. Uh, and actually, there is some evidence in non-sporting contexts that it may be beneficial in men situations, particularly with sleep. And in, in Amy's world, if the sleep is anxiety-related, 
So if, if you know, help him from a relaxant, which who isn't anxious before big competition. The reason it's controversial, though, is that every other cannabinoid within that plant still is prohibited. So the possibility of contamination of your product with another cannabinoid, for me, is really high and just isn't worth the risk at the moment. But I have no doubt some athletes will be taking it, particularly because it's a multi-multi-million pound industry and the sponsorship being thrown around by CBD companies is beyond belief. So I have no doubt some athletes are going to be talking about it. And because its relationship to cannabis, know that story. It, it, it's a dream for the press, isn't it? If it turns yeah. out that one athlete is saying, you know, a, a major reason for my success was thanks to, to, to CBD. And, and Luke, we'll get even more controversial. I think the only way this is going to be solved is at some point where we're going to have to remove cannabis as a prohibited substance, like UFC have done, like NBA basketball have done, um, and, and I believe Wada are looking at it. But, yeah, I, I think that's the one that's going to be talked about a lot following these games. Interesting. And, and one, one point you mentioned there, which is it's always interesting to me, is that because I, I remember I, I was the director of research at the British Olympic Medical Centre uh, at the time when uh, contamination of supplements was just the headline news. Yeah. Uh, a whole host of athletes tested positive uh, who claimed it was in their supplements. Uh, so therefore, we undertook a whole host of studies looking at, at whether they were contaminated. Lo and behold, the IOC study showed that over 80% of supplements were contaminated. Mm. Uh, and from there, I, I established this process, which has now sort of evolved into what we call informed sport, mm. where manufacturers of supplements can now get their product batch tested yeah, effectively to demonstrate that there is absence of contamination. What's your take on this, Graham? I mean, to my mind now, there is no excuse for an athlete to test positive on contaminated supplements, given that there is there are processes in place which can avoid that happening. Correct. But it's complicated. And yeah. it's important that athletes are getting the right support. And to back up Amy's point before, it's important that they're getting accredited, qualified support. And it's the same in sport nutrition that, there are still a lot of people out there who aren't accredited. Now, look, informed sport is great. Risk minimization, we can't call it risk removal because there will always be some risk associated, but there is with food. But when you speak with people at informed sport, and there's other ones such as NSF, Cologne List, BSCG, but there's a variety of them now. Um, no product that has been tested on gone through the informed sport program has subsequently been shown to be contaminated and fail uh, an antidoping. So we have got a really good way of doing it. What I would point out is that um, because the informed sport logo is now being used as a kite mark, well, there are some very dodgy companies out there putting the logo on products and haven't tested it. So we can't just look for a logo anymore. We've got to look for that informed sport logo and then do our due diligence and cross-reference that batch number with the website. And if we do everything like that, then we've got a brilliant chance of risk minimization. And you're right, there is no longer an excuse. But if you're willy-nilly buying a supplement off the internet that isn't tested and you then subsequently fail an anti-doping test, well, then you probably need an IQ test as well because <laughs> it, 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 there's proven pathways now to help you. Yeah, you know, I agree. I agree. Uh, I'm not sure about the IQ test, but I certainly agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Uh, David, let, let, let's let's finish off here. Um, not on a negative note, but on on you know whatever happens at, at the Commonwealth Games, win, lose or draw, athletes have got a life beyond sport. And, and uh, what I'm assuming is that you work really closely with athletes in terms of, of what I would deem as being part of athlete welfare, making sure that there is legacy to their sport that they've actually got somewhere to go once they've finished. Is that something you do a lot of work with? Yeah, that's right, Greg. And I think the first thing to mention about life after sport is not to talk about life after sport to the athletes. <laughs> yeah. so I think that's the craft of the practitioners for them to be able to have positive experiences, you know, in and around, alongside their, their heavy schedules to have them to, um, you know, we mentioned about community development, you know, and them giving back and serving someone else. And we've, we've supported athletes in the past with enterprise and starting their own, you know, business and, and creating an ecosystem around. And we mentioned also that the time is poor. So we have to work alongside their heavy training volumes and their competitions and sometimes education to broaden their experiences and, and also just to try things of interest. So we think a lot about, you know, what's my next passion? You know, after sport, what am I going to do? And what am I going to be passionate in? And sometimes when we, when we speak to them um, in my earlier days, they, there would be a fear setting in, like, this is all I am, this is all I've ever done, and this is the only thing I'm passionate about. So the craft, the craft of, the, of the lifestyle practitioner is to expose them to different environments and exchanges and to talk them through what those exchanges were like and, and, to, and to follow up on some of those interests that may lead to passions. And, and I think over time, you know, when we have our athletes for, say, three years, we talk about that career development and, and hopefully we, we, we've worked along with them where they've created something. So they have a sense of pride, whether that's a pitch for a new business whether that's a community development event they've created where they've, they've got volunteers to help their old, their previous club. We can start to talk about, you know, their leadership qualities outside of sport, the skills that they've developed, um, the entrepreneurial spirit that they, that they may have that we can look at, you know, post-competition. Because when we started, and I started working with athletes maybe uh, close to about 20 years ago now, there was a real focus for us on, performance you know and, and and if we win that medal then we're happy and then the athletes win that medal and then afterwards then who are they when they finish the sport and, and that medal's gone and they're kind of forgotten and it's the mental health issues which follows that which there's lots of research you know supporting it so for us and, and this athlete these athletes that have come through and, and and the 10 that i've mentioned that affiliated with john moore's we've hopefully exposed them to other things you know within their life so when they do change gears and they transition out of sport they have other things to follow up to follow up on and they have other areas where they're good at it and they also feel fulfilled in other areas of their life and, and our whole goal is for them to contribute to society long after we've gone brilliant and of course education is central to that process and I think that's a wonderful point for us to finish and, and thank you know Liverpool John Moore's University not only excellence in supporting athletes excellence in the support staff that support those athletes uh, and i wish every athlete at the commonwealth games and certainly the athletes that you guys are working with uh, every success this year uh, thank you for your time graham amy david it's been an intriguing debate i could actually i could actually chat for much longer uh, for those listening i hope you've enjoyed today's podcast uh, there is a whole series of these podcasts please 
Uh, make sure that you share this podcast uh, and continue to listen to the podcast of some of the, the fantastic work that's going on at Liverpool John Moores.